A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag. That's not the kind of thoughts I'd like to keep. The harmonious stage. Ratchet buds burst. You look dandy in the sky. Welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's 1969 masterpiece, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Sweet Sweet Bulbs, which is track nine on the album, track three on side two. It was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California in March of 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Personnel on this track is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zoot Horn Rollo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, and Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals. Uh, Length of this track is 2 minutes and 21 seconds. Uh, My guest today is the musician, writer, and blogger Ken Shimamoto. Ken, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Joel. Due to the fact that I'm recording this uh, all out of sequence, um, I've I've had the discussion with with Ken uh, regarding the his initial exposure to to Captain Beefheart and uh, what his initial take was on the music um, uh, already, but unfortunately, you the listener won't be able to hear that until the Dolly's Car episode. Um, so that's something to look forward to. But as we were talking right before the show, uh, Ken mentioned that there was some some other aspects of uh, Beefheart's music that he or his introduction to Beefheart's music that he didn't discuss on the Dolly's Car episode. So uh, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw it to Ken for for more information on his first exposure to to Beefheart. OK, thanks, Joel. You know, and, you know, uh, we had spoken earlier about how, you know, my early exposure came through the records from my college roommate about 75. And I, I saw the Magic Band perform twice in New York in 77. But in between times, you know, a couple of things that gave me a greater appreciation and made me understand, for example, things like Trout Mask was not completely chaos. It was not only ordered, but through composed. And um, one of the one of the things that gave me that insight before seeing a different group of musicians perform that music note for note was crappy audience tapes that we fans used to pass around back in the day. Um, You know, specifically there was a recording from the 1973 show at the Academy, not the Academy of music at town hall in New York city. And then there was one, which I believe came from Bickershaw, you know, some big festival in the UK anyway. But, um, you know, again, hearing the material played by a different set of musicians, note for note, made a big impression on me. And, you know, back then, you know, b- long before the days of the Internet and YouTube and, you know, people having access to isolated tracks from the recordings, it was really hard to pick out a lot of the information. You know, on Trout Mask in particular, because you had the two guitars you know, it, it got a little bit easier on Lick My Decals Off Baby because there was just, you know, the one guitar and the marimba, you know, playing melodic lines. But there there were musicians that I knew, you know, on Long Island and New York who were a little bit older than me, 
who'd had more exposure to the music and, you know, were actually playing it. You know, there were, there was a guy named Ken Duval who, uh, who was a couple of years older than me. And he was a musician. I was kind of in awe of because, you know, he and his brother could read notes and they made a record and it, you know, it was kind of like as close as you were going to get to a Canterbury Prague record played by, you know, Long Island teenagers in 1973. But Ken, actually auditioned for for Don you know Van Vliet in Boston in 1975 because he was living up there didn't make the cut but he did get to play for him twice and uh, there was a tape that we used to pass around that had Ken and another guitarist named Bruce Crystal who's still active in, in the New York area playing some beef hard tunes and I remember you know learning how to play the guitar and marimba parts from the woe is a me bop off of that tape, because on the record, it's, gee, it's, you know, it's kind of overwhelming, but you, but you hear it with the parts isolated without the vocal and so forth. And, and it was a lot easier to pick that stuff out. So, so both of those things, you know, made it a little more immediate for me, you know, than, than the records. Yeah. One thing that, um, because there are some instrumental tracks that have uh, circulated around there were the uh, obviously this was much later on but on the grow fins box there's yes. the rehearsal tapes where you can actually hear the band playing the trout mask songs the house um, sessions yeah the house sessions yeah without van fleet's vocals and it, it really is you're you're much better able to at least appreciate the intricacy of what they're doing without van fleet's voice dominating the mix in in quite the way that it does on on Trout mask replica. Yeah, I mean uh, the instruments are a lot more present, and you know John French doesn't have the the, the cardboard muffling his drums, <laughs> you know, on on the house sessions recordings also. Absolutely, I, I have to ask for the uh, the Ken Duval record that you describe as as being a, a Long Island take on Canterbury rock. Is that something that's still in existence anywhere? Because I would love to hear that. It's actually on YouTube. Like if you Google Richie Duval and Dog Truck, I think the whole record is out there. I think Rich actually remixed, you know, the tracks a few years ago and put it back out there because it had been it had been circulating. I mean, it was a privately pressed thing, you know, in New sure. York. There were probably three or four hundred made, you know, and and I mean, I've got one, but you know, you, you don't see those floating around, you know as much as some other things because it was just a local private release but it is on youtube yeah uh rich duval and dog truck i'll have to see if i can get a link to that and include it in the the episode data for this episode because that sounds i'll send you something i'll send you something uh oh right on thanks yeah i'm i i have a, a real soft spot for the the canterbury sound stuff from the early 70s which which any if any listeners don't know was kind of a sort of semi-pastoral branch of of english progressive rock that would include like soft machine and and then robert wyatt branching off from that and hatfield in the north and uh that that kind of stuff it's you know if you if you have no tolerance for for prog it's probably going to rub you the wrong way but um th there's i, I, it, I mean it, it's a little more cerebral and jazz influenced than you know people demonstrating what they learned in music school <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's less, uh, to use uh, David Greenberger's, the, the term that he used for King Crimson, it's less of the academy yes. and more, more of improv and, and uh, yeah, like you say, jazz, jazz influenced. And there's also a sense of humor to it, which I don't hear on a, a tremendous amount of, of 
of uh, the big English prog bands. Right. You know, King Crimson wasn't exactly a barrel of yucks. <laughs> I mean, it had its own humor, but 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 you know, that's not the first thing you think of. You know, so did um did this uh the the gentleman who uh i think you said it was ken who who auditioned yeah. for for beefheart did he have uh did he have tales of what that experience was like you know basically you know he 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 went you know to see to see don in his hotel and you know he, he had practiced some songs you know from i i believe from trout mask there might have been some decals material you know and he played he said don said complimentary things but he was probably just being nice you know but 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 he did get to audition for him twice and then you know subsequent to that i guess is when you know morris tepper and and those people came into the band you know i i, th I think it was after the the uk tour in 75 you know the, the okay so the audition this this is in prep then for the bat chain puller Exactly. Era, exactly. Okay. Like Greg Davidson had left, and Elliot Engberg had left, you know, or, or was in the process of leaving, and so, you know, they had to be replaced. Denny Wally might have been in the band at that time. You know, I I never talked to Ken about that. I think he just played for Don. You know. a, a singular experience to have had, to be sure. No doubt. Uh, yes. So for the the track that we are discussing today, uh, sweet sweet bulbs. Uh, I was listening to this again, right before we we uh, got on on the air here. I listened to the album version and also to the the instrumental, um, the house recordings version, where you can hear them uh, hear them practicing it at a what sounded to me noticeably slower tempo than it appears on on the album, which leads me to believe they rehearsed it a whole bunch more times before they even got into the studio with that one. Cause it, it seems to be moving a little quicker on the, on the record, but this is one of those tracks that for me, um, gives the lie to the, the repeated, um, description of this album as being harsh and, and being angular and, and difficult to listen to. There are some sections of this track that are a little difficult, but, it's the album is not uniformly harsh and the opening guitar figures, the call and response of the two guitars that open this track and then repeat a couple more times is this very kind of playful sounding, delicate sort of sweet um, guitar uh, guitar exchange. It's it to, to me, it does not feel harsh or off putting at all. It's, it sounds like a couple of, to use imagistic languages, it sounds like a couple of birds kind of flitting around in a garden or maybe, maybe even butterflies. And, and actually, you know, the way this track begins, you know, is one of my very favorite transitions on this album coming out of the kind of claustrophobic terror of Bill's corpse, you know, and then the last couple of lines of that song and that one chiming guitar chord are kind of, you know, valedictory and they, and they set the stage for this. But then when this starts, it's more of a, of a pastoral, <clears throat> you know, kind of idol. And the music reflects that, you know, um, I mean, the guitars, you know, you can you can say it, it, it's blues based in a way, but it's it's more. I, I mean, it's tonal, first of all, but it's but it's more melodic, you know, and, and the other thing that's really striking to me about this is the drums, you know, because. Rather than playing strict tempo or rather than playing you know a, a lot of 
a lot of complex time signatures. What it sounds to me as though French is doing, and I'm not, I'm not too sure. I'd have to go back to his book to see whether he or Don wrote the drum parts for this song, but it's almost a conversation. It's almost following the melodic line at times. In his book, uh, I was looking through it yesterday, and he indicated, I believe he said that he wrote the drum parts on those. I know he said he worked very hard on them yes. uh, and that he was very proud of of the drums on this track and how they interact. As you say, he's not just playing, he's not keeping time, time necessarily. That's not all he's doing anyway. It's, it is interacting with the melody and um, the the little hi-hat, I think it's a hi-hat, I'm not a drummer, so I'm just going to presume that it's a, a hi-hat of some kind where over the, underneath the part where Don says, tinkling like mercury in the wind, yes. uh, he, uh, he indicated that, um, I believe if I remember correctly, the Van Vliet may have added that line and that French felt it was in reference to that little... Um, uh, little uh, tinkling cymbal part that he included in there. So there's, there's interaction, not just between the melody and the drums, but between the lyrics and the, the rhythm parts. The other thing about this track in particular, and, and you know, jumping ahead in time, you know, um, to 1976 or 77, when Ornette Coleman's Dancing in Your Head came out. You oh, know, sure. And that, and that was the first record with you know, prime time, the electric funk band with Ronald Shannon Jackson on drums, worst recording of Shannon Jackson of all time. But <laughs> the textures, you know, both the guitars and the drums on that recording were very reminiscent to me of Trout Mask and particularly this song, Sweet, Sweet Bulbs. When I heard it, I said, what the hell? Because, you know, I'd heard the early Ornette Coleman, you know, with the acoustic quartet. And in no way did that prepare me for the kind of sprung rhythms and, you know, guitar chatter that that characterized primetime. And, and possibly because I was listening to Trout Mask so much at the time that that recording appeared, that was the first thing that popped into my mind. It's like, oh, my God, you know, Ornette's doing Captain Beefheart. Oh, I could absolutely see that. The the I, I know that they they knew each other to some degree and the what I have read was that, that Coleman was a, was a fan of Van Vliet's music. I don't know that that was ever, that that's ever backed up by anything more than anecdotal evidence, but I, I mean, they had actually visited Ornette at his house on Prince street, I, you know, and, and there, there, there's a, an anecdote about it in, in the John French book. Oh no, no, no. In Bill Harkelrode's book. Oh, okay. Because, because um, Langdon Winter, the journalist was with Bill and they were meeting Don at Ornette's house and they were in the taxi with three of Bill's guitars and two of Don's saxes. And Bill goes up to knock on the door. Then he looks over his shoulder and there's Langdon Winter standing right behind him. And the taxi is driving away with all of their instruments. <laughs> and and oh, they still man. had a show to play at town hall, you know, <laughs> were they able to flag it down? Did he, or did the guy take off with their stuff? The instruments were gone. You know, oh, I, I think they had to rent instruments to play the gig, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> but, but anyway, a, but anyway, that, that was, was a drag. Street, you know that that took place, and that was around the time that you know, you know, like the '73 New York show is around the time that the the ideas for Ornette's prime time were germinating. You know, I mean, I don't know whether he had any of those musicians, you know, on hand. You know, Blood Almer and and Shannon Jackson, Burn Nix, and so forth. But 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 he was definitely 
making a change in his music at that time? Could that have been in response to, to hearing Beefheart? That's an interesting question that we can't ask Gornet anymore, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah, any, anyone who is listening to this who has not heard da- uh, Dancing in Your Head, uh, if you like Trout Mask Replica, you really should seek that album out and listen to it. The The way the guitars weave in and out of each other and interlock and play these kind of... Uh, these short, these uh, converse, musical conversations that kind of go together and kind of don't is very, very reminiscent of, of Troutman. Whether there was a direct influence or not, it certainly yeah. ha- is reminiscent of Trout Mask Replica. Even the kind of uh, slightly, the clean, trebly tone on the guitars, uh, which is very untraditional jazz guitar sound, is... You know, is, and just the fact, you know, the, 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 the nursery rhyme-like simplicity of the melody is also reminiscent of some things in Beefheart. You know, some some, some of the tonal tracks on, on Trout Mask, you know, ha- have that same quality, that, that dance, you know, to them. Absolutely, yeah. It's like a little four or five note theme that, as you say, sounds like it could come from a nursery rhyme or from, I know... Yeah, I know Van Vliet would like... Uh, toss in references to like mama's little baby loves shortening bread you know that that kind of um uh, simplistic old like ch- children's tune kind of mm-hmm. thing and yeah, yeah. i can absolutely and, and hear that cadaver, and then it shows up again on the spotlight kid you know he couldn't get away from it <laughs> yeah i guess he really loved that track and i i was reading and this was on wikipedia so this can be taken with a big grain of salt but that evidently brian wilson was also completely obsessed with shortening bread <laughs> and would would play it constantly and like called up i think i think it was mickey dolan's from the monkeys and insisted that he sing on a cover version of it which i don't know if they ever got around to recording or not but what it, what it was about that particular tune that that led these two icons of 1960s music to be so fascinated with it is is beyond me but <laughs> It, it, it's just it's just one of those things. It's 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 part of the culture. It's in the air. You know, if you were growing up in America at a certain time, I guess that's probably true. In in reference to material that would would come out much later than than Trout Mask, uh, and I again, this is a case of I don't know that there is any direct influence or not, but the opening guitar figures on this and the way that they kind of the call and response and the way that they end up sort of interlocking together in this one little piece. It reminds me in some ways of the group television and the, the stuff that they would do with the, like on Marquee Moon with the, the two different, the two separate, you know, independently, very, very simple guitar parts that, that come together to form something that neither, neither guitarist could play along play alone yeah and and i mean it's not it's not a reference you ever hear in regard to television but i have to think that those guys you know that tom verlaine and richard lloyd were at least aware of beefheart and would have heard you know trout mask and decals and and and, you know the records from around that time i I mean there's really no other you know no, no other rock kind of you know, guitar tandem. I mean, I hear television compared to the Grateful Dead, and I, and I think, no, that's not really that's not really valid. I mean, just texturally and tonally, they have a lot of the same thing that that the Beefheart guitarists did that you don't find elsewhere in rock music. 
yeah, television's much. I, I can see the dead comparison to some degree, but television was much spikier than than the dead ever ever got, as far as I know. I'm not a, a I'm I tolerate the dead. I'm not a dead hater, but I don't go out of my way to listen to them a lot. Um, my dad is going to listen to this, and he loves the Grateful Dead, so I don't want to I don't want to disappoint him. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. I, nope. I, I like I like Dark Star, and I like American Beauty, and everything else. You know, this kind of a jumble for me, you know, with them. It's a lot of stuff to listen to. And I mean, oh, yes. <laughs> but but the thing I find with Beefheart is I can keep going back to these records and finding new stuff. And it makes the imperative of finding something new less than it, than it once was for me, you know. Yeah, I, I get that. This this record is uh it, Every time I, I hear it, and I think I've said this on probably every episode, but every time I listen to this album, I hear something that I've never caught before, or I notice something or some connection that that I've never made. Just just listening to this track before we recorded, I noticed that it's this you know very kind of sweet tonal beginning, and the the guitar parts actually do uh, recur. I think three different times, which is semi-unusual for for yes. songs on this album there's a lot of them where something happens and then it simply never happens again it's 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 yeah. one and done but, uh, but, but you know when you start listening to the tracks though you realize that there are sections that recur it's usually in units of four and eight but it depends on what's happening in terms of you know different time signatures like you know if you have one instrument in seven and one in three and one in four basically you know when french Kluge these things together from Don's, you know, piano parts, he would have to look at common denominators for the time signatures to come up with the number of repeats for each instrument, things like that. But, but there is, but there is repetition in this music, you know, and the other thing, listening to Trout Mask a lot recently and, and listening to the other records, I, I realized there are themes or riffs that seem to, to recur between records. You know, we talked about, you know, the, the mama's little baby thing, you know, between, between Trout Mask and Spotlight Kid. There, there's, a, there's just a brief little riff in, in Neon Metrium of, of an Octofish, which is a song where there aren't a lot of repeats and there aren't a lot mm -hmm. of touch points for the different instruments. But if you listen to Petrified Forest on decals, there's a riff that sounds, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar, you know, in, in the same way on decals, there's a, there's a, a marimba part in that same song in Petrified Forest that sounds a lot like one of the guitar figures at the beginning of, um, oh gosh, which song? Not Sweet Bulbs. But anyway, I, I've lost the thread. Which <laughs> but, oh, That's okay. I, that happens to me all the time when, when I'm doing this show. But that's, that's in, I never noticed that with Petrified Forest, but I'll, I'll, I'll have to listen to that uh, once we're done recording and, and check that out. I, I have heard occasionally, and I know that, that the band in French's book and in Harkle Road's book, they'll occasionally point out like this song takes the riff from this and plays it backwards or something like that. Steal and... softly through snow. That, that, that's the song, you know, the, the guitar lick is played by the marimba on, uh, on petrified forest. Oh, that's or interesting. Or something I'll... damn near like it. You know, like if you listen to the two side by side, you'll hear what I'm talking about. 
I, I'm going to do that as soon as we're done because I I'm curious to check that out. I know that um, when when Trip joined, a lot of it's like they just kind of transposed some guitar parts over to him playing them on the marimba, which is such an interesting textural choice. Yes. It's like you don't hear marimba played in a rock band no. over much. And, I, I, and, and, and it kind of opens up the sound, you know. I, I mean, there's there's a certain density to Trout Mass because you have two guitars with similar textures and timbers, you know, that are playing, you know, you know, not necessarily in the same key or, or the same time signature, but it will fool you a lot of times if you're, if you're trying to figure out what each instrument is doing. You know? Oh yeah. Because yeah, like you say, they, this, the guitars, even though they're hard panned on pretty much every track that's a studio track anyway, they're, they are t- timbrally extremely similar. And yes. yeah, it, it does create these kind of, uh, almost like i don't know what the oral equivalent of an optical illusion would be but something like that where it's like oh uh, that part sounds like it's on that guitar but it's actually the bass part interacting with the other guitar part and so it sounds like he's hitting that no it's 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 uh, extreme extremely complex yeah i mean from one moment to the other one guitar might be playing low the next one he goes high and the other one you know shifts from high to low you know things like that that will confound your ear <laughs> If well, you're trying I, to. I I know you um you sent me a, a video not long ago of you working out uh, some of the guitar parts for my Human Gets Me Blues. Yes, and I, I never realized that one of the parts is simply for a, a chunk of the song is simply a repeating two note pattern, just just yep. like an and a, a high note and a low note because it, it seems like so much is going on in that track. I had no idea it was this you know simple like police siren like part and, and, and it actually switches like that. between guitars at, at a certain point too it's like what what happened there you know but but again you know that there's so much going on and there's a lot of information that it's really hard to hear on the records that things like youtube have made possible for folks to 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 finally pick out because you know the the low guitar part on steel softly is 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 largely obscured on the record you know, because of, you know, the recording technology, the mix, Don's mm-hmm. vocal overwhelming it, you know, but, you know, some of those parts are more prominent. Like if you hear Eric Clerks playing, you know, w- with the, with the reunion magic band, you can say, ah, that's what they were playing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, um, in terms of, of connections between like the shifts in the songs, uh, one, one thing that, that has come up on, on, on a few episodes as well is the, uh, the somewhat laissez-faire approach that that Van Vliet took to actually rehearsing with the band and the the way he would apply his lyrics to the songs that uh, sometimes he would you know th- he like on um, she's too much for my mirror where he he quite literally runs out of room in the song to fit in all the lyrics that he had for it so you can right. hear him expressing frustration at the end that he 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 has more lyrics that he can't fit in. Um, so it's it's always interesting to me the tracks where it really does seem to gel quite well like my human gets me blues is one where his the shifts in the lyrical tone and the subject matter and in the sound of his voice do seem really well well blended with the musical shifts and there's there's some of that in this one too like when he when he hits the line about um uh just behind you was a sea of negativity that's that's when all of the instruments shift from that kind of uh, 
very tonal beginning into a, they sound like they're shifting into a different key. I'm, I'm, I haven't, I'm not enough of a musician to actually be able to pick that out, but it sounds much, much more minor than the earlier part of the track. And it's right. the, the tempo seems to, or the time signature seems, seems to shift a little bit. Things get a little more dissonant and it does seem and react like that sea of negativity is actually being reflected in the band at that moment. Yes. And, and, and when you think about how he put, how he put his vocals on and the fact that, you know, he couldn't really hear the backing track in the studio. And, and you wonder how much of that was intention and how much was happy accident. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that as well. It, it could be simply a pure, purely, purely a happy accident that that it, that does seem to line up because there's certainly other tracks where there doesn't seem to be a whole hell of a lot of of connection between what's going on musically and what he's singing about so right. that could that could be one of those like the the urban legend that was circulating back in the 90s that if you played the wizard of oz and synced up dark side of the moon that they would they would go along with each other perfectly <laughs> it's like well yeah you know if you to put any two things together there are probably going to be points where they seem to synchronize I mean, we used to do it with, uh, with with Pink Floyd and Nixon speeches when I was at Dana. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'd but pay I, good I, money uh, to see that. But 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 the the other thing about this song that makes it kind of unique. I mean, lyrically, you know, he's he's kind of moving toward the ecological concerns that become the primary theme of decals, and which you hear elsewhere you know, on trout mask, you know, in wildlife and, you know, a couple of other places and the character, the woman he's describing, you know, some people, some people will say it's like he forecast meeting his wife, you know, even though he, you know, the, the album was recorded in March and he didn't meet her until the fall of 69, but, but the character that he describes and, and the setting he describes, you know, are very, are very pastoral and very idyllic. Absolutely. This, yeah, this is another one of his very like sweet and admiring character sketches that that yes. you get a few of on this album. The 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 woman in this this track who I, I guess I had always presumed was named Phoebe, but in in Barnes's uh, book he he believes that Phoebe is a reference to the sun, um, which hmm. you know, I'll I'll take his word for it. That that's. <laughs> But the uh, yeah, it's this this kind of mother nature, uh, and also a little bit of a hippie earth goddess kind of a kind yes. of woman who's got this uh, you know a, a literal garden of Eden where you can go and and uh, open to anyone who needs a little freedom, most anyone that needs a little freedom, which is uh, I think most of us w- would like a little freedom, especially particularly at the moment. And the the interesting <laughs> the um, the way he kind of grounds it in a sort of earthiness too, with the like share her throne and use her toothbrush, and spend which is some interesting hours. Spend some interesting <laughs> hours. Yeah, that's that's really that takes what could be kind of this ethereal hippie image and and really grounds it in something that's pretty pretty practical and earthy. If someone's letting you share their toothbrush, you're pretty close. Yes, and, and that's the thing. I mean, as much as as much as Don at the time would have denied, you know, being a hippie or being part of you know, that countercultural, you know, milieu, he was, and, and, and the, the magic band were very much people of their time. I mean, you know, he disavowed 
you know, the use of psychedelics, you know, you know, from about 71 on, but clearly, you know, psychedelics were very much a part of the early magic band, not, not by the trout mask time, but, but certainly, you know, the period that led up to it. And Absolutely, I mean, Bill yeah. Parkinrod was coming out of an LSD cult when he joined the band, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's that sounded terrifying based on what what little of it is is in is referenced in his book and in in French's book that he was on some kind of insane diet when he entered the band. He was like ah, six foot one the and a no hundred. The, the no mucus diet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's like one hundred and twenty pounds and six foot two or something like that when he joined the band. It's like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah the ideal man. state is is eating one apple a day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, more power to them if they want to do that. I need a little more than one apple a day. And um, Van Vliet evidently said something along the lines of later on explaining the bulbs in question, saying that uh, we have a garden and we eat a lot of sprouts, which, uh, again, more power to them. I can't stand sprouts. But if that's what the sweet, sweet bulbs are referencing, then, you know, that's. Okay, man. That's that. That's your. You, you're welcome to grow what you like in your garden. <laughs> and, and again, it was it was an image that he wanted to portray. You know, of being someone. And, and I think it was genuine in the sense that you know you look at his early history, and when he was a child, he was sculpting animals. You know, he and and was very interested or tuned into nature. You know, that that was, I, I think, part of his part of his persona from, from very early on, even before ecology became a buzzword, you know, in the zeitgeist. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nature and nature and animals are, are massive sources of, of imagery in his work. I wonder if he was a vegetarian. I don't think I've ever actually seen that referenced I, anywhere. I don't think that he was, I don't think that he was because it seems like they were on the road after the, the mucus-free diet phase, and you know, they were in some restaurant. He says, "I think I'm going to get a steak," you know, and, and then everybody did. It was it was almost like a, you know, a competition to see who could be the most like Don. <laughs> yeah, no, that 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 absolutely tracks. I mean, the kind of cult of personality that he was very deliberately cultivating in the band that I can absolutely see. You know, you want to be. You want to be close to the king. You want to be, you know, you want to, if you hold him in that much admiration, you want to look like him. You want to eat like him. If, if someone holds that much sway over you, then, then I, I can absolutely see that. Let's, you know, yeah, I'm going to eat. I'm going to order exactly the same thing that, that he ordered. Yeah. And, and again, that was the, that was the part that was so hard for me to reconcile you know, after reading French and Harker Rhodes books with the, the kind of cuddly surrealist, you know, that the, um, the Langdon winter pieces in Rolling Stone had paid, had paid, painted, you know, after he spent time with the band and really didn't talk to anybody, but Don, but, but a lot of, a lot of the myth, you know, of, of Beefheart and, and the image that he portrayed, you know, came from that. Yeah, he had a very calculated uh, approach to to interviews and to self mythologizing, and and you know painted this image of himself as this kind of uh, genial guru figure, um, 
whereas the actual experience of working with him and I, and I gather from from fans who interact with them he could be exceedingly charming and pleasant to fans as well and and very outgoing and and chatty and kind um yes but with with the musicians in his band there was another side of his personality clearly that uh that would hold sway i, I gather that it he he chilled out a bit as he got older and and with later incarnations of the magic band that the trout mask guys got at the worst but that there was still he was still a a, a challenging individual yes yes and, and again you know I, I think the way the way he interacted with musicians depended a lot on you know things like their age in relation to him the degree of fandom that they had before they came into the band, you know, because mm -hmm. the, the, the musicians who played in, in Trout Mask, again, are basically, you know, guys from the high desert, a little bit younger than him, who, who came up as musicians in awe of Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. They were the right. big successful local band. And, you know, Bill Harkelrode got the gig and he's like, I got in Beefheart. I got in Beefheart. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And, you know, he thought they were going to be playing, you know, sure enough. And yes, I do. And wound up playing something completely different, you know, but, but we're dedicated enough to put in the work, you know, for, for nine months rehearsing all this material. Yeah. Uh, they, and, and later bands at the very least had a template from which they could work. And, and some, someone who was a guest on the show made this observation. I wish I could remember who, but it was, it was, that, you know, if the band that recorded Shiny Beast Bat, Chain Puller, they could look back and say, you know, oh, this is what Trout Mask Replica sounded like. This is probably the kind of thing he he wants us to do when he's presenting his his piano parts or whistling his melodies or, or whatever. Whereas the Trout Mask Band are developing this sound from the ground up because there really isn't any precedent for what for what he's producing and what he's asking them to do. Look at each record and you compare them and and they all sound different and part of what makes them sound different is who's in the band at the time and what people's roles are, you know, because I mean, Trout Mask, it, it's kind of a transitional album from the early, you know, sort of psychedelic blues to something more avant-garde. And, and John French was the instrument of, you know, translating Don's ideas and making them playable by the band. And then, you know, on decals, Harkle Road takes on that role because mm -hmm. French was out of the band for a period. And, you know, with Spotlight Kid, the tempo slowed way down, which bummed out the musicians. Perhaps it was to make it more accessible, but perhaps it was also because it was really hard for Don, you know, as you alluded to earlier, to get all the words in when they're playing at this fast tempo, you know, and, and he doesn't habitually rehearse with them. Yeah, the slower tempos on, on Spotlight Kid do definitely give him room to kind of show off what he could do with his with his voice and and really swing you know, swing out that big blues voice of his as dysfunctional as as that dynamic was in the trout house they all knew they were doing something unique nobody else had played music like this before you know there really is no precedent in rock music you know for anything like this it was so far beyond anything anybody had imagined and you know, to be to be the ones who can figure it out and, and and put it across, that had to give them some sense of accomplishment. Although it was not recognized 
as the achievement it is until much later. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that it is still something that is, is treated with the, with respect and awe and fascination and, and sometimes more, more than a little, uh, more than a little fear is speaks to just how, how far ahead it still sounds and how much it, it is still kind of a, a boundary marker of this is how far you can go with rock music and produce something that is just this absolutely incomparable work. And, and, and beyond that, I mean, it's not just that it's techniques and it's method and it's process were unique for the time. There's actually emotional weight to this music. I mean, mm-hmm. you listen to, you know, you listen to Bill's corpse and it's terrifying, you know, on a certain level. And then, and then you go from that to sweet, sweet bulbs and it's, and it's welcoming. It's, it's gentler. It's kinder. It's fill in, you know, fill in the adjective that I'm, that I'm reaching for, you know, but I mean, this was music that had an impact, even though it seems to have been created almost in haphazard fashion. You have a guy playing piano who doesn't know how to pi- how to play piano, you know, and you have somebody else transcribing the information and arranging it and having it played by, you know, two guitars and a bass and a drummer. Well, hen- hence my attempt to to bloviate about it for for twenty eight <laughs> episodes, discussing discussing it in, in um, I'm sure to what some listeners might seem like agonizing detail. <laughs> But but I th- I think that this is one record, and there aren't many. But 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 this is one that bears that kind of scrutiny. I I agree I agree completely. The uh the only other things I really wanted to mention about this track were, uh if we're if we're keeping tally of the animals that he mentions on the album, we've got a crow and a chicken, uh in this track, and in the the kind of uh, old American Southernisms that he occasionally references, we've got hominy used as an adjective in this track which is another connection back to the the kind of like the short and bread kind of imagery of this very very homey um uh old old american old american domestic kind of imagery that that pops up out here and and like old fart at play and uh, a few other tracks something about don van vliet that i don't know shame on me i don't know anything about his family before they were in la you know, they moved out, they, they moved out to Lancaster, you know, to, to get him, you know, out of the city or away from the perfidious influence of the European artist. But <laughs> I'm not sure where they came from before, before that. And, you know, most people in California, you know, in the 40s were from somewhere else. Right. You know, 30s and 40s. I, whether he had southern roots or any kind of connection there, I don't know. If I remember correctly, I think Barnes and French indicate that he did have some relatives with a connection to the South, but to what degree he was close to them or like internalized any of the stuff that they would say or the stories that they would tell is, is uh, unknown to me. Unfortunately, Van Vliet, you know, his, in, in any kind of interview situation or anything like that, it was always this hall of mirrors where he was, you know, projecting certain images of himself and engaging in sort of wordplay and messing around with yeah. the journalist, basically. So a- any kind of sense of really who he was or the influences 
on him at that that age are it's it's all a little it's all at least blurry if not completely illegible you know uh, but the thing we do know it from, from the biographical trivia that has emerged is he grew up around his granny annie you know mm-hmm. where, now where she came from i don't know but but she was a presence in his life until the time he was he was captain beefheart yeah, I, I know what you mean, and I can see that degree of, I can just see that just in social interactions, the degree of to, of specialization of what information people will take in and what they are, are willing to accept into their worldview seems to have narrowed to some degree into these echo chambers. And it was a very, a very fortuitous, you know, sequence of events, because, you know, at, at that moment, Frank Zappa happened to have you know, the, the capital or the ability, you know, to record pretty much whatever he wanted to, mm. you know, for, for straight and bizarre records. And, you know, he was able to give his friend the opportunity to, to realize his vision to a greater extent than probably would have been possible with anybody else, even at that time when, when you know, so many rules would be written were being written as people went along, yeah. you know, and, and, and that was not an unmitigated good thing because, you know, Don felt insulted that, you know, Frank wanted to do um, anthropological field recordings at the house, but, you know, and when they finally got in the studio, they had six hours to do 21 songs <laughs> and wound up taking four and change. So go figure that, that that's the benefit to being well rehearsed. Well, I think that that is going to cover it for uh, Sweet Sweet Bulbs. Uh, Darren always rates the song, as I say on every episode. I rate every song on this album five out of five. Uh, because I have I... to agree. I have to agree with you. I, I mean, there's nothing on this album that I wouldn't give you know five for five. So I was going to say, if you wanted to to rate it, you you were welcome to. But it sounds like we are on the same page with that. So um, if you have anything that you would like to signal boost uh, or promote, Mr. Shimamoto, the floor is yours. Well, I, I said this last time, which you which you all won't hear till later. But I blog at stashdauber.blogspot.com. I've got a YouTube channel with my name that's got some bands that I used to play in and some some uh, videos I've been doing since the pandemic of uh, Captain Beefheart music because, well, it's only taken me 45 years, but I finally figured out some. So putting it out there. Uh, I, I'm impressed. If I had 45 years to do absolutely nothing but that, I don't think I could I could do it. So I, <laughs> I consider that to be an impressive accomplishment. And I will make sure that that uh, data is included in the, the episode data here. Uh, if you want to follow track by track on Twitter, we are at underscore track by track. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, it is at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. Uh, Mr. Shimamoto, thank you again so much for being on the show. Thank you, Joe. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. Sell her throne and use her toothbrush and spend some interesting hours.